Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. It is a pleasure to be here at KSU. You know, when you listen to somebody, I'm 71 years old, when you listen to somebody kind of go through the things that you've done in your life at my age, it, you realize that it, it kind of misses part of the journey. You don't really, you don't really get the, the kind of the full story. And I think it's important for you to know, you know, why, why is this guy here talking to us today? Why did he leave beautiful northern Michigan where it was nice and cool? and come down to the Alabama area to address everybody. So I want to tell you a little bit about my background. Well, you know, it's true I was the CEO of an international corporation that had, well, we had nearly 4,000 restaurants. We had uh, $4.3 billion in revenue my last year. And we had restaurants in 45 states and 40 foreign countries. But look, I, I'm really, I'm just a working class kid from Cleveland, Ohio. My, uh, my father, when I was growing up, was a car salesman. My grandfather, and this picture I have here, I hope I'm going to be able to do this. Look at that. My grandfather came to this country in 1912 from the Austro-Hungarian Empire looking for opportunity, like millions of immigrants before him and since, and he got a job uh, building houses in the Cleveland area. And so this is, you know, we were, we were just a working class family, I, although you, you really didn't think about it that way back then. I mean, everybody that I went to school with was working class. Everybody that was on TV was working class. It wasn't like now where you sort of break it down by percentages and people sort of look at these differences. Being a working class kid was just the way things were. That was until my dad asked me if I would, I was about 10 years old, so it's 1960. My dad asked me if I would go with him to deliver a car to a very rich person, a very rich guy in a very rich area, really near where we lived. It was just a few miles away, but, uh, but it, it was a world away in reality. And it, it really made a big difference to me, I think, uh, in, in my life, and I'll explain why to you. So we leave our little ranch house where I lived with my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, uh, in you know, a little ranch house, I'm talking little. And uh, we drive up, we pull up to this big gate and it was in an area, if you're familiar with Eastern Ohio, East, uh, East, uh, East Cleveland, the area east of Cleveland, it was called Hunting Valley. And there were a lot of rich people that did hunting, and there was a polo field. We, anyway, we pull up to this gate, and this gate's just huge. Now, I, I was 10 years old. I don't know if it was as huge as it is in my memory, but in my memory, it's this massive gate. The gate opens up, we pull in, and there's this beautiful, you know, white house. I, it, it's just, you know, it's so much nicer than the ranch house we lived in. It's just this beautiful place. The lawn is perfectly manicured. The, uh, the driveway, even the driveway is beautiful. Everything's gorgeous. But there's a road around to the right. And my dad, it, it, which goes back to some stables, and instead of pulling in in front of the house, my dad starts to go to the road around to the right. And I said, Dad, I, I said, why, why didn't you stop? And he looked down and he said, well, son, that's the guest house. 
So we kept driving. We went by these stables, which were actually nicer than the little ranch house that we lived in. The Mr. Humphreys, this is George Humphrey was the guy that owned the house. He, uh, I think he, he had a better place for his horses than we had. But you come around to his house, and his house was really this, this mansion. Now, again, I was 10 years old. If I went back today, I don't know how big it would actually be. But in my mind, this place is Downton Abbey. I mean, it's just this huge place. My dad goes to the front door. Mr. Humphrey comes. I think I expected a, a butler or something to answer. But Mr. Humphrey comes to the front door. He and my dad got along very well. Uh, and they talk for a while. I'm looking around like I'm, I'm just, I'm astounded by the wealth around me. The horses, the, this field, the horses are grazing. There's, there's guys in livery. There's the huge guest house. There's the, you know, the, the castle this guy lives in. They finish talking. My dad and I are walking back to drive the trade-in home. This, he, Mr. Humphrey traded in his car and the new one that my dad brought over. And I looked up at my dad and I said, you know, Dad, why, you know, how? What does Mr. Humphrey do that he can live like this? My dad said, well, son, he's a lawyer and he runs a business. He owns a business. I said, uh, I can, and I can, like it was yesterday, I can remember thinking, you know, a lawyer. Yeah, I, I, I could be a lawyer. Now, I think it's important that I thought that. Nobody in my family had ever been a lawyer. Nobody in my family had ever graduated from college. So I think it's important that I thought that. But I think what's more important is what I didn't think. What I didn't think was, you know, that son of a bitch is stealing from us. <laughs> He's like in the 1%, and we're in the, you know, whatever percent you're in when your father sold, you know, Fords in the 1960. No, I didn't think that. What I thought was I could do that. And, and thank God, I lived in a country where there was a path for me to do this. And in the country my grandfather left, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, he grew up as a serf. If he'd stayed there, you know, like the rest of my family that was there, we'd have been serfs. We wouldn't have had the opportunity for the fulfilling life that you get when you live in a, a free market capitalist economy. So I lived in a place where I had the opportunity to improve my life. And, and I'll tell you, there has never been another country in the history of the world where a working class kid like me could have aspired to the level of success I was able to achieve with any realistic chance of achieving it. Had I grown up in a socialist country, the idea of lifting myself from the working class to any other class either wouldn't have occurred to me or would have seemed like an impossible dream. Thank God I lived here. But today, young Americans seem enamored with the concept of socialism. It was kind of funny, back in, the, in 1990 with the fall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, when President Reagan had just finished his term, the Berlin Wall came down, the joke was, it, it, the Soviet Union being the largest socialist economy ever to exist, uh, other than China, perhaps, which is now arguably, they call it red capitalism, but at that time, it was the largest socialist economy ever to exist. And when it collapsed, the joke was that the only place you could find a socialist was the faculty lounge at Harvard. Well, that's not true anymore, you know, with, with very grandfatherly Bernie Sanders and, you know, the energy and enthusiasm and the charisma of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You hear a lot more about socialism, and, it's, and it seems young Americans are enamored with socialism. Now, why you would want to take an economic system that has literally you know, re released the shackles of poverty and despair from billions of people and replace it with a system that inevitably results in tyranny and oppression is kind of a mystery to many people my age who sort of lived through 
the period where the, social, where the Soviet Union was a more powerful, uh, a more powerful institution. But this, this is what's happening today. And in fact, uh, there was a poll done just last month by Axios. It was an online poll that found that about 49% of America's youth uh, it favors capitalism, and about 46% favors socialism. So given the margin of error, it's probably about 50-50, which is kind of discouraging. But what's more discouraging is that two years ago, it was 58% favored um, capitalism and 38% favored socialism. It was a 20-point disparity. So that, that's changed a lot, and you, know, you have to wonder why. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think one reason is that today's youth, and many of you I know have recently come out of high schools, uh, today's youth, I think, is often taught leftist ideology as leftist propaganda as fact. Now, one of the facts that seems to get taught is the idea that capitalism is based on greed and that socialism is benevolent. And I want to talk to you about that in a minute. Another thing that I think is, is, that contributes to this is that America's youth, for years now, has been fed leftist ideology as entertainment 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by a media complex that advances that ideology. But the interesting thing is there was another poll done about two years ago by the Victims of Communism, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation that found that 68% of America's youth couldn't accurately define either socialism or capitalism. You know, they, don't, they couldn't define socialism. They love socialism, they just don't know what it is. So I thought since this is, a, we're, we've got an economics class here and we're coming at this from the approach of an economics class, I thought just so we're on the same page, we could start with definitions for socialism and capitalism. Socialism is an economic system where the means of production, distribution, and exchange, basically the building blocks of the economy, are controlled by the state, either through ownership, or through heavy taxation and regulation. Capitalism is an economic system where those same building blocks are controlled by individuals. All right, so what's this, what's this, uh, this deceptive you know, uh, impression of capitalism being based on greed and socialism being benevolent that I'm talking about? Where does that come from? Well, some of you may have seen, there was a movie back in 1987, again, about the end of the Reagan era, called uh, Wall Street where Michael Douglas played this, what was supposed to be a quintessential capitalist, you know, at least in the views of Hollywood, named Gordon Gekko. And he made this comment that greed is good. Greed is good, which, you know, I, which apparently is what Hollywood thinks capitalists think. Well, the reality is greed's not good. Maybe in Hollywood it's good, because in, in Hollywood may be one of the places greed actually is good. But in the real world, greed is not good. And capitalism's not based on greed. Now, what do I mean by that? Capitalism is the only economic system where the way you improve your life is by meeting the needs of other people. When I ran CKE restaurants, we didn't try and figure out what kind of burgers I wanted to eat or that government elites wanted to eat. We tried to figure out what kind of burgers you wanted to eat and how we could convince you that we had it at a price you could afford. Because in capitalism, you succeed by satisfying your customers, by satisfying other people. And if we didn't do that, you know, our competitors would have, you know, they would have eaten our lunch, so to speak. Think about your local grocery store, or the Amazon warehouse, or shopping malls before the pandemic when there still were shopping malls. Think about the grocery store, let's take that. 
hundreds and hundreds of products, each product representing an entrepreneur, and each product screaming at you, leaping off the shelves, trying to convince you that they have what you want at a price you can afford. And that puts control of the economy in your hands. We all vote with every dollar we spend on which companies succeed and which companies fail. You know, BlackBerry failed, iPhones, Androids. You vote every day. Is it a Tesla? Is it a Chevy? You vote every day because you have the power to vote, which means that people who want to succeed, people who want to go forward in this economy, have to meet your needs. Now, that's not truly charitable conduct because these entrepreneurs want to improve their lives. But I doubt that any of you would disagree that wanting to improve your life is not a bad thing. If wanting to improve your life was a bad thing, you wouldn't be here in college. Capitalism is the way to improve your life by meeting the needs of other people. So it actually works against greed. What about socialism? All right, what about socialist countries? Well, in socialist countries, it's just the opposite. Right? In a socialist country, you are always competing with everybody else for a limited supply of goods and services that the government makes available. Right? Now, most, whether it's, let's, let's take food. When you're in a socialist country, there's always lines for food because, because they don't ever produce enough food to feed the people in the country. So whether it's the Soviet Union or Cuba or Venezuela or North Korea, if you're standing in a line for food or for, or for government-run health care or for gasoline, whatever you're standing in line for, you're not thinking about what the person in front of you or behind you in line wants. You're not trying to think about how to meet their needs. You're thinking about how to get the most for yourself when you get to the end of the line. If I'm in a bread line, how do I get the most bread when I get to the end of that line? And how do you get the most? How do you improve your life in a socialist economy? Well, it's not by meeting the needs of other people. You're competing with them for goods and services. It's by meeting the needs of the government elites. Because unlike a capitalist economy where we all control the economy, in a socialist economy, the government elites control the economy. So you improve your life by meeting the needs of the government elites. You know, think about North Korea. North Korea, people are starving. You've seen the pictures, right? North, South Korea, you know, if you look at a picture of North Korea and South Korea at night, have you seen these pictures? I should make a slide of this. South Korea looks like a Christmas tree. North Korea looks like, you know, darkness of death because there's no electricity up there. People are starving there. Children are starving. Even the soldiers don't get enough to eat. But Kim Jong-un, does it look like this guy's missed any meals? Or how about Venezuela with Maduro? You know, in Venezuela, people are literally eating their pets. They can't feed their kids. You know, does it look like Maduro and his military buddies are eating their pets? You know, Venezuela, as recently as 2011, was the richest country in South America before Chavez took over and then Maduro. It sits on an ocean of oil, like Saudi Arabia, an ocean of oil. Well, how do you go from being the richest country in South America, they have the, the, the most natural uh, energy reserves of any nation on Earth, the greatest oil reserves. How do you go from being that country to being this? This is Caracas, Venezuela. Some of you from Los Angeles might have thought that was home, but it's not. It's, Venezuela. it's Caracas, Venezuela. The, uh, that's another, uh, Los Angeles will be a whole different lecture. Uh, but this is Caracas, and this is the benevolence of socialism. 
This is where socialism leads you. Now, from the, from the Soviet Union through North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, one lesson that comes through consistently is, in a capitalist free market economy, there's prosperity and abundance. In socialist economy, there's poverty and want. Now, what you'll hear is, you know, Andy, uh, those aren't, uh, it, it may be that if North Korea, uh, Cuba, you know, they're, they're, okay, the economy's bad. But that's not us. Bernie Sanders, he's out there saying, that's not us. We're, we're Denmark, right? We're not Venezuela. We're Denmark. Denmark is this democratic socialism. Denmark is a socialist country. And look how happy and prosperous the people are in Denmark. There's only one problem with that. The problem with that is that Denmark's a free market capitalist economy. In fact, in 2016, when Bernie Sanders was kind of running around saying this about Denmark, the prime minister for Denmark, Lars Loki Rasmussen, came to the United States and said, I know that people in the US associate the Nordic model with some form of socialism. I'd like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. And in fact, Denmark is number 10 on the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom. Since about 1990, the Heritage Foundation, a very well-respected think tank in Washington, D.C., does an index of economic freedom that ranks from 1 to 180, the, the major economies in the world. Denmark, in 2021, ranked number 10. It was the 10th freest economy. And to give you a little perspective on that, the United States had the 20th freest economy. Denmark had more of a free market capitalist economy than, than the United States had. Now, people will probably say, well, you know, Denmark, they have high taxes, but all these social programs, and that's true. The people in Denmark did vote for high taxes and, and generous social programs. They've actually been cutting back on those for about a decade because they found that they discouraged people from working. They discouraged individual initiative. But the fact of the matter is, there would be nothing to tax. There would be no monies to pay for these generous social programs unless Denmark had a free market capitalist economy. All right, so capitalism, poverty and prosperity, or excuse me, prosperity and, and abundance, socialism, poverty and want. But, is, but do people really get the benefit of this? What, is, this, is this just like Jeff Bezos makes a ton of money, you know, and, and Steve Jobs and uh, Elon Musk? Or, or do people, do ordinary people benefit? So I'm going to take you through some of the history of capitalism, what's, what's gone on over the past 240 years since uh, Adam Smith wrote a book called The Wealth of Nation, ex explaining why you would want and how you would implement a free market capitalist economy. And I'm going to show you a chart. It's been called the most important graph in the world. And what this graph shows you is GDP per capita from the year zero to about 2010. Now, GDP per capita just means economic production divided by per capita the number of people in the world. So it's economic productivity for the entire world from the year zero up until the, the year 2010. It first appeared in the uh, Atlantic in 2012. It was prepared, prepared by a British historical economist named Angus Madison. He was an economist that looked at the history of economics. He didn't look at current circumstances and try and predict where they'd go. He was looking back. 
Uh, the Angus Madison Foundation is still in existence and pursues his work. And man, what a hockey stick, right? Something happened around 1800, 1790, 1800 that, that zoomed up. GDP per capita, economic productivity per person just accelerated. And this affected everybody in this room. It affected your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and it'll affect your children and your great-grandchildren. This was an incredible historical event. Now, I showed this to a son who was about your age when I showed it to him a few years ago. He's now 28. And he said, Dad, you're going to tell me this is capitalism. But, I, but look, I went to school. That's the Industrial Revolution. So I said, let me show you another chart. This is a chart that breaks that chart down by regions in the world. And you can see the United States around 1790, 1800, shoots up and then really, really shoots up after the Civil War. Well, why would this happen? Well, what happened was that in uh, 1776, not only did Adam Smith write The Wealth of Nations, but we also, in a, it, we also came out with our Declaration of Independence, another very significant document. We ended up with a constitution that adopted a free market capitalist economy as the economy for the United States. And between 1789, when we ratified our constitution, and 1885, so 100 years, the blink of an eye historically, we went from 13 backwoods colonies to the greatest economy in the world. By 1885, we had the world's largest economy. How about Great Britain, Western Europe? They had an industrial revolution. You can see they went, they went up and then they shot up some. Then they shot way up. Well, why did they all of a sudden shoot way up? Well, it was the end of World War II. And for those of you, and the end of the First World War, so both wars. End of World War I killed a lot of the monarchies that existed in Europe, which really had a system an economic system that depended on the wealthy dominating the economy, not individuals. And then with World War II, which is where you really see the shoot up, it was the fall of the National Socialist Party, which those of you who had a good education in high school will know was the Nazi Party. The Nazis were proud socialists. Maybe the most impressive line on this graph is Japan. You can see that at the end of World War II, Japan not only shoots up, it shoots up past Western Europe for the first time in history, well, why did that happen? Well, General MacArthur went in and set up a democracy and a free market economy uh, in Japan at the end of World War II. You can see Eastern Europe shoots up after the collapse of the Soviet Union. China shoots up when they adopt red capitalism. It's not even real capitalism. It's sort of a BSE capitalism. But even they, imagine how much they would have improved if they had adopted real legitimate capitalism. So it's not, it's not just because there was an industrial revolution. You know, Western Europe and Japan had an industrial revolution. They were able to fight World War II. It was because of capitalism. But what does that, what does that mean? Does the money get down to people, right? Isn't that really the question? So you create all this wealth, like who cares if it's the emperors and the, you know, the kings and queens and the, the, the uh, titans of industry who make the money, who cares? Well, here's a chart from the World Bank. Uh, the World Bank is just what it sounds like. It's a bank that, that wealthy nations in the world contribute money to. It, it funds projects in recovering nations, so it does, it's emerging nations, so it does a lot of work uh, determining what the economic circumstances are in various countries. What they found was that in 
1820, 94% of everybody in the world lived in extreme poverty. By 2015, that number was down to 10. Actually, by 2019, it was down to eight. Then last year with the pandemic, it went up to nine. Well, you know, we'll see what happens this year, but under 10. So 94 people out of every 100 living in extreme poverty. You know, if you've ever read a book by Charles Dickens, you know the other six, probably three or four of them were just living in regular old poverty, you know, not extreme poverty. I mean, in the world, there wasn't a lot of wealth. There wasn't a lot to go around, and people lived in extreme poverty. You can see that number come down dramatically. Well, I've got a techie friend, and I asked him to take the database from the Angus Madison Project with GDP per capita, economic production per person, and line it up with the decline in extreme poverty and this is what you get. He said he never saw two things line up so, from two different databases, line up so consistently. And you can see the decline in extreme poverty and the increase in wealth. Now, this has been, I'm gonna, this slide's out of place. I'll come right back to it. This uses the same, I swear this is my last graph. This uses the same economic data from the World Bank and looks at what's happened since 1990, which was the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the then the world's greatest socialist economy. And you can see hunger, poverty, illiteracy, child mortality, and pollution all drop significantly. What's interesting is that during this period of time, the world's population increased by two billion people. So while the population's increasing two billion people, while the world's switching to an economic model that's based on free markets, we see fewer people starving, fewer people living in poverty, fewer babies dying. You know, that's the benevolence of capitalism. The Heritage Foundation, again, their, um, their report that I told you they come out with every year that uh, analyzes uh, economic freedom in the world. Their 2019 index came out and said, global economic freedom over the last 25 years has resulted in unprecedented global prosperity. By a great many measures, the last 25 years have been the most prosperous period in the history of humankind. And why? Well, the result, as global economies move towards greater economic freedom, world GDP, remember Angus Madison, has doubled lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Now, why does this work so well? Well, you know, if you think about it, think about the energy that's generated by the fact that the way you can make your, improve your life is by meeting the needs of other people. Capitalism makes the economic pie bigger. And nobody, said, nobody talked about that better than John Kennedy. Actually, John Kennedy was running for president in 1960 when my dad took me to see Mr. Humphrey's mansion. He said, a rising tide lifts all boats. What he was referring to was a growing economy. In other words, as the economy gets better, it lifts everybody, which means that uh, wealth production, prosperity, isn't a zero-sum game. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, it isn't necessarily true that the rich only get richer when the poor get poorer, or that the poor only get richer if the rich get poorer. Everybody when there's economic growth can benefit because that rising tide of economic growth lifts everybody. And it turns out he was right. He, he argued this when he was arguing for tax cuts, massive tax cuts in the early 1960s. They passed the tax cut bill after he was assassinated 
but GDP growth zoomed in those years and poverty declined significantly. But we don't have to go back to John Kennedy to see how these economic policies work. Donald Trump also cut taxes, reduced regulation, and focused on domestic energy production. What was the result? Well, the result by 2019 was that family income grew that year to an historic high of $68,700. It grew at six, it grew 6.8 percentage points, which was the, the, the most significant growth going on record going back to 1967. And again, who does it benefit? Is it just rich guys? Well, no, the growth rate was greatest for minorities. It was 6.8% on average. It was 7.9% for blacks, 7.1% for Hispanics, and 106 for Asian Americans. All groups, every group, hit record highs for income levels for that group. What about poverty? Well, as incomes grew, as you would suspect, poverty dropped. It dropped like a rock. Actually, it dropped 1.3 percentage points. That's the most it's dropped since they started tracking poverty data in 1959. It dropped to 10.5%, also the lowest poverty rate since they began recording the data back in 1959. So who, all right, who, who did it benefit? Well, while the average was 1.3 percentage point drop, for blacks, poverty dropped 2%, uh, for Hispanics, 1.8, and for Asians, 2.8. So what, what about, uh, oh, by the way, all-time record lows for every race and ethnic group? What about that democratic bugaboo income inequality, right? What about that? Well, with incomes going up for lower income people more than higher income people, poverty declining, income inequality decreased for the second year in a row. This works. Free market capitalism works. It frees you to improve your life by meeting the needs of other people. And in doing that, generate great prosperity and abundance. Now, why is this important to you? Why am I here talking to you? I told you I'd get to, remember the beginning, I said I wanted you to know why I was here talking to you. Well, it, it's important, I think, for you to know that this is how you can help other people, not just yourselves, but it's how you can prosper and others can prosper. You've been born into the most incredible economic system in the history of the world. It empowers our farmers to feed the world because by feeding the world, they can better feed themselves and their families. It empowers entrepreneurs to rebuild our cities, our inner cities, because by fighting urban decay, by opening grocery stores and restaurants and new apartment buildings, they can better their lives and their communities' lives. It's the best system ever designed for the poor and the marginalized. It empowers them to vote with every dollar they spend on the direction of the economy. And it creates the opportunities that allow them to prosper and to move from one economic class to another, as I did. Now that's the American capitalist system, and it's, you know, it, it's soon to be in your hands. This is why I'm here talking to you today, instead of sitting up in Michigan where it's nice and cool and sunny. This is gonna be in your hands. Right? And Ronald Reagan, look at that, I had one I forgot about. <laughs> there we Ronald Reagan, in a speech in 1967, commented, talking about young Americans, that freedom is always but one generation away from extinction. I'm here talking to you today because I don't want that to be your generation. 
I would love to see you hand on the personal liberties and the economic freedoms you inherited in as good or better shape to your next generation and future generations than you received them. That decision's totally yours. All I can do is, is give you the information. I say may God bless all of you in those efforts. May God bless your school and uh, good luck. And I'm gonna take questions and it's been a pleasure to be here speaking with you today. Thank you. Any questions? Come on, you guys have questions. You know you have questions. There's too many people in this room not to have questions. There you go, this gentleman. Uh, so I'm learning this in my history class right now, American history since 1877, that's post-Civil War. Uh, do you think that early protectionism uh, in the economy has played any major role in America being the strongest economy right now? Because from what I'm learning, during the first few years of Reconstruction, there were high tariffs on foreign goods, and uh, that basically made the American industry more robust and strong in itself so that they could compete in the global market. Do you think that has played any role in the prosperity of Well, you know, you have to remember that in the period of time you're talking about, we were not the most powerful nation in the world. The most powerful nation in the world was the British Empire. And the, the saying back then was the sun never set on the British Empire. I mean, the, these British imperialists, they controlled India, Australia, South Africa, Canada. I mean, they were spread across the globe. So all, all we were, you know, at that point we weren't even 50 states. We were, I don't know how many, many states we were back in the 1870s. So no, I don't think that tariffs help. In fact, when it comes to economic growth, if, if you're on a level playing field, in other words, you don't want to have, for example, with, with automobiles. Right now, Europe charges a 10% tariff on American automobiles. We charge a 2.5% tariff on German automobiles. So you want to, you want to sell a Ford in Berlin, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you, you've got to, Mercedes can underprice you by 10% without blinking an eye. In the United States, that difference, the advantage for Ford or GM is only 2.5%. So you really, you really don't necessarily help your worldwide market with higher tariffs. And if your tariffs are high, you're not getting the advantage of other countries being able to produce goods at a lower price than you can produce them, which means costs go down. So what you saw in the United States during that, this is the Gilded Era you're studying, or the so-called Gilded Era. What you saw was more economic growth, more immigration, uh, more increased in GDP. That's when you see the, sh the, the really, the United States shoot up in that green line in that one chart, and it never comes back. I mean, those protectionist policies go in and out, but they never, it never slacks. In fact, one of the reasons the Great Depression lasted so long was those kinds of policies. At the beginning of the Great Depression, we enacted some laws to try and protect Ameri the American economy. It killed it. It just killed it. So I, I don't, as long as you're on a level playing field, in other words, it, look, if Germany's charging 10%, I think we should charge 10%. That's just my opinion, because I think if, I, I'm for fair trade, right? And I'm for free trade, but I don't think free trade is free unless it's fair. And if somebody's charging you a higher tariff than you're charging, that ain't fair. So I, I, so I don't think protectionist policies were a significant contributor to our growth at that time. I think it was our economic policies, such as the Homestead Act, which opened up the entire West with, you know, you got five acres if you went out and, and, uh, and lived on the land for 10 years. 
the, um, the uh, federal policies that put in the rail network that connected the United States, right? Well, once you had that food production and you had transportation, you then could bring all these, all these people that, that came into this country as immigrants coming to the United States for opportunity. You, you, eventually, we, had the, we could feed them. We could move the food across the country. Same was true with goods and services. So this is, it really was more our economic policies internally than our attempt to exclude other countries from dealing with us. We really, you know, we, by 1885, we were the world's biggest economy, but we weren't the world's only economy. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. I, I don't know, that's why I come and talk, because <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what else to do. It, uh, I think the problem is that our education establishment, and, I'm, and not Kennesaw, I'm not, you know, I mean, Tim wouldn't, be, wouldn't have invited me here to talk if this was the case, but our education establishment has been taken over by progressives, and they use it as a means to implement progressive policy. We've also lost the entertainment industry, which, as I said, you know, if you, I, it's, sometimes it's hard for me to watch TV shows because they're, they're, they feed so much leftist ideology as though it's reality and fact, when I think I tried to just show you, much of it's just BS. But this is what you're getting out of Hollywood. This is what you're getting in, in, um, in you know, public elementary schools, even in private schools. And it's changed a lot. When my, my kids, I have three sets of kids. My three older kids were born in the uh, 70s and my three younger kids were born in the 90s. My three older kids got an education very similar to what I got. It, it, it really wasn't all that different. And I never felt like I had to teach them civics, history, uh, and economics at home. My three younger kids, we, they went, we lived in California at the time, and I had to teach them all three of those things at home because they were not getting it at school. And what they were getting it at school was contrary to uh, what in many instances I knew was reality. There's, a, there's actually a book uh, by a... a historian named Zinn, which is a terrible book, but it actually talks about the collapse of the Soviet Union and doesn't mention Ronald Reagan. I, you know, it's, you know, it blows your mind. I, it just how can that possibly be? But that's a, a book that was used broadly across the United States in history courses. So I think it's, we, we all need to make an effort in my generation to reach out to your generation. And uh, this is my outreach. Thank you so much. Yes. So it's this ebb and flow that you see all the time. And the reason why I say that is because I think the youth in America and the youth all over the world are dreamers. And they have this ideology that all people, all people should be without any form of suffering or any form of low income. Like we should all be equal. So everybody wants this concept of Star Trek, where there's no such thing as money, 
everybody works for the greater good of society and you uh, works for the greater good of society and then basically you know everybody just does great and we, we carry on this way and so they the idea is because people haven't really now that everybody's doing so well they don't know what like real suffering is underneath those types of systems so i would i would just I would argue that the reason why popularity has declined is just the perfect example is Winston Churchill's quote is that when you're young, if you're not a liberal, <laughs> yep. you have no heart. And when you're an adult, if you are not conservative, you have no brain. And I think what, what you're saying, there's legitimacy to that. And I can tell you, having lived through two eras where, where things did kind of ebb and flow. For example, during the administration of Jimmy Carter, which was the late 1980s, just before Ronald Reagan, I mean, the economy went down the tank. I mean, not only, it, was, it was really very similar to what's going on now. Iran, the, we, we didn't back the Ayatollah, we didn't back the Shah of Iran, the Ayatollah took over, which we've been paying for ever since. We sent in helicopters to rescue our people at the embassy. They crashed in the desert. It was very embarrassing. <coughs> the economy was really in a pit. It, we had double digit inflation. I mean, there was actually a point where inflation, where interest rates to tap down inflation hit 17%. I mean, you know, try and buy a house. The first house I bought in 1980, the interest rate was 13%. And a year later, the bank wanted to buy back the loan because interest rates had gone to 17%. <coughs> and that really opened up the, um, the, the uh, opportunity for Ronald Reagan to get elected. He came in, you know, lowered interest rates, lowered inflation. Uh, GDP went up, employment went up. We really had, it was really an economic miracle in the 1980s. It was really pretty spectacular. And it carried through, really right through the Obama administration. We're now kind of back to the point where the government's overspending and we're seeing wages go up but inflation go up more. So, you know, if, you're, if your wages go up $5 a week but the cost of goods goes up $10 a week, you know, you actually, your paycheck's bigger but you're making less money. I think we're seeing right now an economic decline that's actually going to result in another switch, another change. And, it, it, it's, and it's really kind of in stark contrast because it, it, it's so disappointing because 2019 was so good. You remember everybody was working, people were coming out of the woodwork to find jobs, wages were going up, inflation was low. Now then the pandemic hits, screws us up, and now coming out of it we've gone back to spending habits and uh, government policies that don't encourage economic growth. They encourage government dependence. And I think hopefully you all know, having just seen this presentation, what happens when you go to broad-spread government dependence. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't necessary during the pandemic. It, it was necessary. And I actually worked with Secretary Mnuchin on some of those programs. But when the pandemic started to wind down, the programs needed to go away. And they haven't gone away, which is why it's difficult to find people to work. We see inflation shooting up beyond anything that's reasonable. And I'm also not saying that there aren't people out there that need help. We're a very rich nation. We should help people that need help. But we shouldn't be encouraging people who could work and should work not to work. And that's what we're doing. So we'll see what happens next. Time for one more quick question. I got everybody was on this. There's only the right side asking questions tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Can I do two more quickly? Okay, go quick. I'll give you a one minute answer. Do I think we need to what? Uh, yeah, we need, you know, it's 20 out of 180. So it's not like, you know, it's not like we're bad. I mean, it's almost the top 10%. Uh, 
Uh, but we were like 12 or 13th before the pandemic. The reason it went down to 20, we were still behind Denmark, by the way. But the reason it went down during the pandemic is because we implemented all of these government programs. So I, I, think, I think it will go down, uh, but it's probably going to take, uh, you know, and I'm, I don't want to get political here, but it's probably going to take another president to get, it, to get us to start moving towards more economic freedom. Yes. Oh, um, I'm all for capitalism. One of the problems, it has its problems like everything else does. Housing crash and all that nonsense that happened back in 2008 was pure corruption. How can we help that while boosting the free market? Okay, so um, how much? I got two minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the housing crash. Ever, anybody ever heard of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac? Okay, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buy. Well, if you if you buy a house, right, and you 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 take out a loan. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will buy that loan. They will buy the loan from the lender. If, you know, it's not a big bank, like a mortgage company. And so they really determine the criteria for whether or not um, you, you, a loan's going to be made. And, they, and because, with very good intentions during the Clinton administration, we wanted to get lower income people into housing, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac lowered the requirements. Well, when they lowered the requirements, the banks to keep business also lowered their requirements because they wanted to make loans too. So we ended up with a tremendous number of loans to people who really shouldn't have gotten loans in the first place. And we did it with these, these fancy interest rates that actually started out really low, but within a year or two, they'd shoot up. Well, guess what happened? The interest rates shot up in 2008. Nobody could pay the, <laughs> nobody could pay the higher interest rates. So they, they all walked away from their properties, and we had a real estate bubble that collapsed. It wasn't just the private sector. It wasn't just the government. It was the private sector, too. The private sector bought into this because it was a little like right now. It just there was this, all this money just kind of free-flowing. Uh, so I think the, pro the problem in that case was really more government than it was anything else. This was a government-initiated program. When the government gets involved in the economy, the government screws up the economy. Adam Smith called, you know, all of us buying... You know, we make decisions every day as to whether or not a company is going to succeed or fail, right? Our grocery store, a pizza parlor, Tesla, doesn't matter. We're making those decisions every day. That's millions of people cumulatively making these decisions. And that's so much more effective than government elites making those decisions. Adam Smith called it the invisible hand. It's the invisible hand that guides the, the economy. If we can let the invisible hand guide the economy, if you don't fall to this socialist corruption. If you don't, you know, don't trust anybody who tells you, we need to raise taxes, we need to increase the power of government, we need to influence the, in, the influence and power of government, and then I want you to elect me president. Or that was Bernie Sanders, isn't that what he's saying? I want you to make the government this powerful, powerful entity, and then I want you to put me in charge. You know, don't trust people who say that. Trust, trust people who talk about giving you your rights and your freedom. Because whenever the government takes freedom away, it takes it from some place or somebody. And that somebody is you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.